And welcome back or welcome to another On Coaching Podcast with Magnus and Marcus. I'm Steve Magnus, joined by my good friend, colleague, and fellow coach, John. And then Marcus, John, what's going on? Oh, you already know. It's the best time of the week because we're here to give the people what they want. Yes, let's go. <laughs> All right. And before we dive into that this week, again, we have our new super running blog that John has gotten going, and there's going to be a lot of exciting things going on in that. So take a look. The link is in the show notes. And then we also have, of course, our scholar program, which actually this week, hopefully by the time this podcast comes out, we'll have our first live in-person, well, not in-person, live Zoom discussion with everyone in the Scholar program. So hopefully that goes off fantastically. We are exploring base training, everybody in the program hopping on Zoom, having a discussion and expanding our coaching abilities through conversation. So be sure to check that out and see if it's something you want to join. Check out Super Running. And without further ado, let's jump into our topic for today. Strength training for distance runners, my friend. It isn't just picking up weights. All right. So this is fun because to me, strength training is a lot of times the neglected area. And we've had other podcasts on strength training and we've had other guests talk about strength training for runners. But you know, what we're going to get at is the common misconception, which is that in order to strength train, you got to go into the weight room. You're right. Or the other common misconception that all runners need to do to get better at running is run. That one's yeah. also my other favorite one. Yeah. It's like we, we, like most things in life, we tend to go towards the extremes, right? It's either like all or nothing. <laughs> or it has to occur in this way, or it's not real. <laughs> like the simple simplicity of the extremes, because it's just very straightforward to get better at running, run. It's very linear. It makes perfect sense. And of course, the majority of your training to better your running should be running because of the uh, said principle, the specific adaptation of imposed demand. However, to enhance the quality of your running and the return on investment for your running, you need to complement it with some other things that are going to provide a potent stimulus. So, you know, when, when we thought about this topic, the first thing that came, came to mind is actually a period of time when I was coaching at Houston and we were not allowed in the weight room. Well, my goodness, <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> you know, football, all that fun stuff. That's the story for another time. But anyway, so we weren't weren't allowed. We got kind of kicked out for a for an entire semester. And um I was talking to two of my favorite, our favorite strength coaches, Dan John and Vern Gambetta, and both said the same thing. They were like, Well, that's not a problem. Just create the strength and power developments out on the track. And they said you know, at first I'm like, what do you mean by that? And they're like, well, you know, just get creative, whether it's plyos, sprints, sprinting uphill, whether it's bringing some med balls and carrying some car carrying some med balls or um, other weights outside and doing some uh, exercises out right after your workout on the track. Like you don't need to be in the weight room, just get creative and if you get creative you can get the same demands because we have to remember what we're, we're after is that adaptations that adaptations are what matter not necessarily the exact method we get to there there's a lot of different paths to get there to there we tend to constrain ourselves to a couple paths just because they're most the most familiar and perhaps easiest in our mind to do mm -hmm. yeah i think there's a misconception because strength training, when people think about that, they think, oh, I got to get, um, you know, big and muscular. I got to lift all these weights. Good strength training to me comes down to very two simple things. Uh, does it improve power and does it improve range of motion or mobility of joints you're working? So with that in mind, you have to say, okay, what is the goal of strength training? Essentially, at the end of the day, the goal of strength training is to increase the excitability or uh, capacity of your 
uh, motor units so that when you do move, you move in a way that's more coordinated, more skillful, um, which is also more quicker and also with a lot more force. And it's just Newton's um, basic formula or basic law of um, equal and opposite energy return that I always come back to for runners. What we want to do is condition our bodies so that when that foot hits the ground, we're striking the um, ground with a lot of force and that force allows for equal and opposite energy return that allows us to continue a swift cadence down the track or the road or what have you. Um, but if you don't uh, practice that skill, if you don't ingrain that ability to react off the ground quickly uh, and organically and naturally as second nature, it's not going to just materialize after doing a lot of um, miles at slow or moderate speeds because what you're teaching your body at those slow and moderate speeds is one, to have a longer ground strike time and two, not to create as much force into the ground in return because the range of motion of your thighs oscillating isn't as big. So all that being said, when you look at it through that lens, does it increase power and does it increase range of motion? Then all of a sudden med ball activities become a very good strength modality. Uh, weight, uh, hill sprints become a very good strength modality. Just basic sprints, plyometrics where you are jumping for reaction off the ground, not jumps. A lot of people, I think, um, think plyometrics are just anything that requires jumping. Plyometrics are solely things that require um, a reaction off the ground and usually depth jumps where you're jumping off a six inch, three inch, four inch, whatever inch box onto the ground and then reacting as quickly as possible in a, a jumpward up or jumpward forward, not just saying you're jumping onto a box and calling that a plyo. Yeah, exactly. I think it's, it's important to understand the, the nuance of our, um, our opportunities to, to improve these, these parameters or these adaptations. And I think, you know, your, your, you know, range of motion mobility versus essentially creating power or force is a simple like, kind of concept of, of how to do things. And I think as distance coaches, a lot of times we have these models in our head for workouts that are very intuitive, right? For workout creation and running where we say, oh, you know, well, I'm after this adaptation. So how do I get there? Well, if I do this many 400s with this much rest and do this, this, and this, then I'll get there. And, and the key is we have this model in our head that allows us then to be creative off of it. So if we aren't at a track, then we can still develop a workout that gets the same sort of adaptation, right? And I think when it comes to strength, a lot of times we understand, we go about it backwards. We understand the workouts that, you know, we're supposed to do, whether it's squats or deadlifts or whatever you have you and the reps and sets, but we don't have the mental model that allows us to um, be creative in knowing what we're trying to adapt. So for mine, it's my mental model is actually very similar to degree. It's strength training is all about either force production or mm -hmm. absorption. You yeah. Know? Yeah. That's power. You're, yeah. It's, it's, you're throwing power down or you're training your body how to absorb and utilize the power, the force coming back up, which is, reactivity, elasticity, all that stuff. And when you, when you sit there and you think about that, then you're like, okay, well, there are certain things that, that maybe tangentially support power development. There are certain things that allow us to develop, we'll just call it specific power for, you know, uh, our activity running. There are certain things that, you know, support the ability to absorb you know, uh, force or high levels, high rates of force, right? Which is all your kind of, um, you know, in 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 the Scott Rasco Allen Webb world, we call them general strength, which allows the tissue to be prepared to do so. And then there are specific things like we just talked about there with plyo, plyos, etc., um, that allow you to specifically train that ability to absorb then utilize hopefully that force coming off uh coming off the ground yeah I, and you know like okay so getting a little background and understanding and framework behind is important now let's you know just 
jump in and dive into how, how you can do it without a weight room. Because I think that's uh, a reality a lot of people are facing right now in, uh, you know, the fluctuating times of the pandemic. But also, too, maybe you might not have that, you know, accessibility in normal times as well, just because of your circumstance. So, you know, at the end of the day, if you only had to do two strength training types of sessions, um, for me, what they would be would be a plyo session, a jump session, and a sprint session, right? Because those two are the most dynamic that Steve talked about, about um, force um, production and also force reabsorption and recycling, right, abilities. However, as Steve wisely mentioned, there is a um, tissue uh, remodeling and tissue comprehension timeline on those because they're happening at faster velocities. You want to like distance running, you know, systematically train your body to absorb and react in a positive way to those stressors rather than break down. So from a sprinting standpoint, we know one of the best things to do first off is just hill repeats, right? You're going to be slower going up the hill because you're fighting gravity, you're fighting the incline. The thigh end uh, is going to come off the ground and into flexion, not as high as it would in sprinting. But then, too, the time in the air or the time before it drops down and hits the ground is going to be less. So there's less abrasion and shock that the body has to uh, deal with initially uh, when you're doing those short hill repeats. That is like, you know, when and when and where should people start doing short hill repeats? Like, to me, that's a first week. Um, you know, and when I say short, I mean 10 seconds and I mean four, you know, to eight of them. So 40 seconds to 80 seconds worth of work, full recovery, but you do it right away twice a week. Um, and typically you treat it as a, um, its own session. Like you want to be fresh for it when you initially introduce it because you want the brain, the body and everything to be, uh, sharp, not already in a semi fatigue state. So you could simply just do whatever warm-up uh, protocols you have. Do your short hill repeats in this early introduction, and go off for a you know a distance run or over distance run afterwards. Totally fine, because again, initially, what the goal is with any type of new stress um, that's high force production, high power, and power being um, strength multiplied by a factor of time. So faster time um, and, and faster strength means more power you want to be careful not to create this initial erosion of your um, like avascular connective tissues, like fascia, tendon, ligaments, et cetera, because that remodeling when it's a new stimulus takes a little bit longer than we'd like. So one of the best ways to introduce that is going to be through just regular bouts two to three times a week of hill repeats, uh, short ones for about three, three, three to four weeks. Yeah, you know, it's I, I, I like the constraint you put on there is what what would you do if you could only do these couple things? Because that really brings clarity about. And I, I think the same thing, you know, I think that the value of a sprinting in general is so high for a distance runner. And I know we talk about this a lot, but it's so high because, you know, you just you just said, you know, two things there. First if you sprint up a hill, it changes the requirements just enough so it's a little more strength and a little less, we'll call it elastic, right? But then if you just move off the hill, it it's, uh, it's not quite as high strength, but higher elastic, lower ground contact times, etc. So just in those two variations, right, we have a wide range of this strength slash power covered to a high degree and and like the one thing you add in there is like okay well if we're just going to sprint up hills and then we're going to sprint on the ground then that requires preparing our body for it so that means preparing neuromuscularly preparing the muscles tendons etc whatever we need to do to do that and hills are a great way to prepare Hill sprints are a great way to then prepare for flat sprints because, as you said, you're running up a hill. So, the 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 shock isn't as high because, again, you're not coming down um, from as high a height because the hill is going up as well. So, um, it's just this great, like, very simplistic understanding. And even if, if we bridge this back out and then we say, okay, well... 
go back to the 1960s when you had, you know, parasitarity lifting, which is great, innovative. And then you had Arthur Lydiard, who at that time, very early on, wasn't for lifting as uh, for his athletes. But you go look at his use of hills in various manners and it, and it, and then flat sprinting in various manners, and it fulfills some of this strength, power, elasticity. I mean, you just look at at um, his first hill phase was what? Bounding up a hill, right? Which is a very high plyo and then also high strength activity. And then it shifted to running up hills with flat sprints at the very top on the flat ground. And, and then, then running it, down the hills. And then running down the hills, right? You're, you've got, and then during crack season, it shifted towards where you're doing some very short, nearly all out sprints. And like we have this very systematic thought process of like Lydiard was, you know, early in his career, not, not as four weights and later came around to it. But like he still had a systematic process of preparing the body from a strength and power manner to you know improve that and 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 almost you know to a degree maximize it for his athletes yeah and bowerman uh was again the moderation between say lydiard and sarity uh, styles of training you know he would have his guys lift uh three days a week in the morning uh before easy runs or right after easy runs um i mean prefontaine kenny moore you name it all these people they lifted weights and also did hills, you know, and that's, that is the brilliance of Bowerman was to be an integrator of a lot of things that were successful and most importantly, sequence them in the most advantageous sequence for the athlete to uh, be exposed to the stress and adapt to the stress. And I think that's also the hard thing too, you know, we want to talk about with strength training is when to do it because, you know, a lot of coaches just say, oh, I'll do it after a long run or I'll do it after a hard workout. And if that is the only time you can get it in, well, yeah, getting it in is better than not. But that is the most disadvantageous time to maximize return on uh, the stimulus because strength training work, whether it's med ball, plyos, uh, hills, sprints, traditional weightlifting, what have you, um, that's a high, high neural demand. And when you're already in a pre-fatigue state because of a previous long, um, exhaustive bout of aerobic activity, your neural output, right, is just going to be less. And so then you're going to get less out of the actions that you do um, for that activity. And so your return is not as high. So that's why when you think about strength training, you want to think about putting it in a f- uh, period or during a time when the athlete is the most fresh possible. And they might be in a uh, a very um, difficult stage or period of training where there's a lot of fatigue always and a constantly kind of fatigued. Just try to pick like in the morning uh, or or the first activity before a general recovery or easy day for your running activity. So, yeah, I mean, this is kind of why weight, Uh, coaches like people lifting early in the morning, right? Is because they know you're up, you're you're most um, neurologically sharp because you just had sleep. And then we can, you know, get the stimulus in. And then you have the whole rest of the day uh, for that acute fatigue that might uh, uh, be created from a weightlifting session or a strength training session to kind of evaporate a little bit before your primary activity or your primary skill um, training for whatever your sport may be, basketball, running, football, et cetera, which happens in the afternoon. Distance runners too, we can also get away from with, if you'd like say double, you can lift in the morning or do your strength training work in the morning and then immediately go for an easy run. And that won't compromise the uh, oxidative recovery benefit of that run. If anything, it will actually slow you down because you have less, um, uh, energy and kind of like you're a little bit pre-fatigued neurologically so you won't be firing off the ground quite as quickly your muscle fibers won't be firing as quick so it'll force that uh, recovery run to be slower because you've already done put your body in a neurologically pre-fatigued state with the prior uh, immediately prior stress of that strength training session so it's a nice little you know i hate to use the word hack but it's a nice little understanding 
to how to make sure to get that stimulus in of strength training and also maintain if recovery is the primary focus of that run, immediately following it, keeping that recovery run at a recovery pace that doesn't get too um, stressful so that the athlete can get the desired uh, stimulus and the desired adaptations moving forward. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I've I've thought a lot and I, about this like timing thing and I've seen it do done a, a, a bunch of different ways. And I think the key is that the way in which you do it changes the adaptation slightly. Because um, like I remember I'm thinking back to my time with Rasco and Webb and we would a lot of times lift weights after a track session, right? right after and you know this like it, it was like marathon days you'd go through this extensive warm-up this extensive track session a three mile cool down and, and then head into the the weight room and you're you're fried doing it and i think um that way you're developing this like strength power endurance under under fatigue to a degree which you have to have a high degree of recoverability to handle it and I know uh, Alan, it worked well with myself. I would walk out of the, the weight room and, and want to do nothing for the rest of the day. And uh, fair enough, Alan was already conditioned to the style of training yeah. for about four, five, six, seven years before you showed, to the, showed right. up to the party. Exactly. So maybe with more time, I would have I would have adapted, and I certainly adapted more. I was only there for two years, but I adapted more towards the end. Um, so, and, and then I think, you know, if one of my good friends uh, who ran at Arkansas for John McDonald would always tell me that they did the opposite, right? They, well, to a degree, they, they lifted and then would go for their, you know, eight, nine, 10 mile run right after, you know, and he, he would tell me um, that, you know, the first several, you know, first few weeks they did that, he would just be dead and trotting along on the run because it was really fatiguing on the run right um but after a while you adapt and you know the top end guys at that time would be able to lift and then go run and run six minute pace all day for their you know nine ten mile run straight after you know whatever a 45 minute lifting section session yeah, I love that. I mean, it reminds me when I was a high school coach, I used to run this um, thing called Breakfast Club in the morning. And it would be in the off season before track and also during track season. And essentially what it was, was three days a week, uh, I opened up the gym at 7 a.m., um, zero period, and for 45 minutes, any, any track athlete, didn't matter, on the team, was had an open invite to Breakfast Club and you just basically did skills and drills and, you know, lifts and just what we're talking about is quote unquote strength training, um, you know, in all different styles, right? Circuit style, med ball, like, you know, uh, agility ladders, like just, just being active essentially for 45 minutes. And then at the end of the day, or at the end of the session, I give them all donuts. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, you got to bribe high school kids with food to get them to do things I learned or t-shirts or hoodies. Um, but the result was the athletes who showed up and like um came to 30 plus sessions you know through the off season and during season they all got really good at their event like really good um they all you know almost were like these were kids who were not state qualifiers not even close who either made it to state or like one spot out of the money making a state we're talking triple jumpers throwers uh, sprinters, distance runners. And the reason you have to understand is the potency and the power of enhancing like the neurological um, efficacy and the neurological, uh, you know, you know, lack of a better word, strength of your brain and your body's uh, mind connection is really, really powerful no matter what event you're doing. And it's kind of like how, you know, in the um, 60s and 70s, right? basketball coaches football coaches said no we're not having our you know guys lift weights i'll make them big and bulky it's that old stigma still hung over right from that bodybuilding imagery now you can't find a basketball or um, football program that does not have you know one to ten strength training coaches or you know uh, strength and conditioning coaches right because people understand how important that physical culture and influences is on becoming a better 
uh, athlete and a better basketball player and football player. Same for running and same for track. But again, like anything else, exercise selection is key and also sequencing is key. You know, and Steve and I tend to be super nerds and look at things like mTOR, enzyme signaling and things of that nature. But at the end of the day, if you hear this and go, God, there's no way I can lift before um, or lift in a fresh state or do strength training in a super hyper fresh state. Remember, uh, runners, we have the aerobic oxidative ability to recover very rapidly. So even if you do like Steve, you know, did with Alan, like a track session, but you give yourself 30 minutes, you know, get something to eat, get something to drink uh, with a little carbohydrate, uh, let your bot heart rate come down just a little bit. You can go in and get a good strength training or uh, weightlifting session for a half hour and still get benefit out of it because you gave a little kind of acute recovery versus not doing it all because of fear of messing something up. So I always want to remind people that too, because there's been times when I've been forced because of an athlete's scheduling conflicts to do the same thing, track workout and immediately do a lift right after. However, my prerequisite was ensuring they got some food and also hydration with um, carbohydrate in so that they could get a, as much as they could get out of that 30-minute session in the weight room after that workout. You know, this is why hard and fast rules don't always work, right? Because it's, it's easy to sit here and be like, you should always lift at this point. But reality gets in the way, especially if you're looking at a high school or college athlete. You know, my college kids, even now, uh, especially now with COVID, um, there's only certain amounts of time you can get in the weight room, right? And well, ideally, it might be to do it on this day, this day, this day at this time. The reality is, especially for us, cross country is going to be low on the 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 strength training, you know, po- totem pole. Um, really, really, I, I, no, I know. I did not thought that. Huh. <laughs> so, so even like you know, figuring that out, it's it's not about being perfect. It's about adjusting for what sort of reality you're going to face. And I think that's why we're going over this topic is that you know sometimes for instance this season this season this year we'll probably only be able to lift once once per week in the in the weight room on a random wednesday um which isn't i prefer it generally on mondays given my schedules um and they're racing but you know that that's what it is so what do we do we have to supplement that with with some of the things that we're talking about on sprinting on uphill hills on all sorts of um crazy things like that i love the crazy things a good story um and here's how here's to show you and and just to demonstrate the potency of how effective this stuff can be if you understand the principles and how to apply it in um situations that might not be that often like when i was working with eleanor fulton when she first came out of college she suffered an achilles strain um her first indoor season with me and she'd already ran a time to qualify her for the U.S. Championships indoors. But she didn't run for a month, like right before the U.S. Championships. Like, I think she started getting back on the ground and running, you know, maybe a week before. And then maybe like strides or something a little peppier, like three or four days before. It was not close, um, you know, in terms of uh, uh, how much time we had to get her like 100%. Like, we had a very s- small margin for error, right? So... You know, yeah, she did some cross-training modalities to, you know, maintain her aerobic efficacy. However, that wasn't the thing that we really focused on. During that time, she could still throw the shit out of a med ball. Um, so we did a lot of, like, um, squat to overhead um, throws, uh, a lot of floor slams, a lot of side-to-side floor slams, uh, a lot of what I call lumberjacks, uh, rotational uh, wall slams. Um, and we did that with a high degree of frequency and a high degree of intensity. And that's the thing that um, you need. we need to understand about strength training too is it is what I call high intensity, high frequency, HIHF activity because the body's ability from a neurological standpoint, it needs to have that skill uh, renewed or um, refreshed so it's a skill that requires a high degree of uh, renewal and refinement because you lose the ability 
um, neurologically to have that crispness and that uh, degree of swiftness with any kind of um, high speed or high neurological skill if you don't practice it in about a, you know, anywhere from a three to eight day period, right? So the, the intent is high frequency. And because it's high frequency and you're doing it three to four times a week, like pretty much almost every other day, then the volume per load or the volume per session doesn't need to be that high because you're getting a higher degree of, um, you're getting that volume through higher frequency. And that also is advantageous too because the mechanical stress doesn't need to be as great either. And that's sometimes I think us distance running coaches, um, we kind of forget that uh, subtlety and that nuance of uh, remembering if, if you have high frequency, you can then over the course of that period, you can incur more volume. And so the uh, amount of volume per session doesn't need to be as great as if your frequency is a little bit lower, right? And we know this works even with uh, interval training, right? Because think of Emil Zatopek. What was his training? It was high frequency, high intensity, you know, in, over and over and over again for a three-week, four-week period, running anywhere from 10 to 40 times 200 to 400 at his, you know, uh, goal race pace, his current day's pace, his like, you know, threshold pace, whatever. But every day it was intervals, 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 right? And we know too from Lydiard, getting back to him, he was a really um, focused coach in terms of his athletes did the same thing all the time. So when you did hip, hill bounding, you did hill bounding five days a week, right? With a cup, like that's really, really hard. <laughs> like one hill bounding session is hard. When you got into the sharpening period, remember with Lydiard, you were running track workouts at either all out or three quarters, six days a week. And then your rest day was a two hour steady run, right? So we got to remember the body is very capable of tolerating these loads if they are um, spread out over the course of um, a week with high frequency. Or another good example is Prefontaine, right? Like pre-ran four to eight miles every day as a easy run from Bowerman's Hard Easy Paradigm that was not a track route at about six minute pace to five minute pace. And when you start to think about that for someone who is as um, kind of fast at the middle distances as pre was, that makes perfect sense. Why would you want someone who's always trying to be in like sub four minute shape for like six months out of the year um, running super slow? It doesn't really correlate to what his um, desirabilities are. And also too, if he doesn't need to run that slow, like say Kenny Moore did, because his sensitivity level is a lot um, lower than say a Kenny Moore to like the type of date pace speed in training that Oregon system did, by all means, two five mile runs at 530 pace in a day is going to have a lot higher training stimulus effect than one 10 mile run at 630 pace, right? If the, the goal is we're looking through solely through a neurological lens. So yeah, go ahead, Steve. Yeah, it's interesting talking about the. I think the frequency is is something that is important to bring up here when we talk about this stuff because, um, you can also it, it's like I think a lot of times we get obsessed with like the big dose, right? The big, the two workouts or yeah, three workouts because it's, it's super week. sexy. It's like look at all this crazy work I did in you know an hour and a half, and it's like. That's cool. How long are you racing? Oh, 15 minutes. Why do you do that much work? So, but it, 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 it's, it's, it's like the small doses of work spread out over time is another option to do this, you know? And that's why sometimes like, um, I've seen different coaches implement, you know, for instance, Canova like implements hill sprints on easy days, right? Everyone, you know, twice a week, sometimes, sometimes three times a week, um, it, you know, mixed in with other full on workouts, right? Or he'll have uh, Canova's example of strength training is also his famous circuits, right? Yep. Or, exactly. Where you're doing circuit. some type of plyometric or coordinated activity for a minute or something, and then you run a lap around the track at your some, you know, 10 K goal pace or something. 
Yep, exactly. It's just another, it's another way to get this stuff in. And I know like, for instance, with, with web and Rasco when you're training is there were small doses of mobility or strength almost every single day. Every day. Yes. It was called GS every yep. day. I have, I have Alan's logs. It's hurdle mobility in med ball and GS pretty much every day. Lifting every was day. three days a week. And, and and it it was at a low enough level where you could do it every day. It was just the time commitment to get get through it, right? But but aside, you know, the lifting sessions were insane. They're like ninety minutes. It was like, why are you in the gym that long, dude? <laughs> yeah, but it's it's um it it's another way to get at these adaptations if you don't, you know. Since we're talking outside of the weight room, it's like, well, if you can spend 15 to 25 minutes doing some of this mobility strength stuff after each workout, well, that's pretty simple. And a lot of times we would, you know, I remember with Alan, like we would do it at the park. Like we didn't have hurdles, but sometimes we would imagine Right, yeah. You're just trying to move the hips to a range of motion. The hurdles are just a cue. Right, ex- exactly. So you'd figure out how to do this stuff. You know, I remember once with myself, I just, you know, I didn't have med balls. I just picked up a heavy rock and used that for some stuff, right? And it, it, and it brings me back, you know, bringing this kind of full circle to what I talked about at the beginning is, you know, I remember, again, good friend, strength coach Dan John saying, well, you know, just pick up some heavy stuff and carry it. And yeah pick up some heavy stuff and walk up the stairs. And if you do that, that is a form of like strength, core, general strength, whatever you want to call it. Oh, whole body, whole body. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And it's like vary it, carry it with one on one side, carry it in your front, in the back, whatever it is, you know, you're, you're creating this whole body strength um, that is, can be done rather easily and simply uh, versus some sort of like um, obsessive programmatic thing that that needs to be done in order to get the work done. And that's what we as distance coaches, we tend to, I uh, feel like um, it's easy to get caught, get caught up in viewing training solely as an anaerobic, aerobic energy system development um, trade-off or game, right? And when we only think through the physiological lens, we lose a lot of um, sophistication about what's really happening when we're running, because there is a high neurological component. There is, as Steve talked about elasticity, right? Muscles and our bodies do have elastic mechanisms in place specifically to recycle energy in a very efficient manner. And if you can create the appropriate like joint angles at contact at strike and through your gait cycle, you can maximize for your genetic potential that free stored elastic energy, which costs nothing from an oxygen cost, right? And we know all this stuff's really important because there's a lot of literature and research that demonstrates time and time again, VO2 max, um, you know, or different uh, like uh, physiological like biomarkers don't have a really high correlation to running or competitive success as we would like to think because of there's such a high mechanical load associated with running it's maybe a little bit more correlated in like swimming and cycling because they're not weight bearing but because we're weight bearing our running economy is kind of one of the key factors right and one thing that enhances running economy is going to be mechanics and then also how quickly you can reposition those um your your limbs essentially to move you through flight from a stance I just finished reading um, Tom Telez's and Carlos's new book, and it's the the science of speed and the art of the sprint. Steve, so put that in the show notes. It is phenomenal, and it's basically ninety nine percent right. <laughs> there was only like one thing I was like, oh, I'm not sure about that, but like it is really good because. It takes, uh, say, Franz Bosch and Ronald Klump's book that I'm a big fan of called uh, Running the Biomechanical and um, Exercise Physiology Applied in Practice, which is a very technical book. It's a textbook. And it's all right in there, too, but it's not as accessible because it's so technical. 
what Telez's and Lewis's book does is like any master coach, he makes really, really complex um, and technical things simple. He puts into simple, straightforward language, and it's a hundred and some odd pages. It's short, it's concise, it's filled with a lot of appropriate um, uh, images and uh, visuals. And he's a coach. He's just trying to help coaches understand the physics behind running fast because the physics are the same whether you're sprinting or running um, and then how to apply them advantageously to help athletes that we're working with be faster with less effort. It's it's a total win-win and plus for some reason Steve's name's in the book too so you got to know it's uh, you know it's a good book. Yes highly recommend. I uh, spent hours upon hours um, with Coach Telez, as he went over this, this was his pandemic project. So, yeah, um, I, mean, I think it, it's so good. It's just so I, simple. It's, I think it, it came out well. And for those who have, haven't, don't know, um, Coach Telez is that is what he does. He is a master at understanding the physics and biomechanics, but then simplifying it so that you, I, random sprinter random runner can can understand it and i think that is that was the goal of this so if you haven't yet um check check it out and yeah, i think he nailed you know, it man he really nailed it yeah. and it, it it gets to the point of of this whole thing which is we tend to um we tend to complexify things and it's important to, as a coach to understand the complexity. Oh, you have to understand the nuance and the reactions yeah. and you, but you've, you've got to be able to translate it mm-hmm. into something that's simple and usable. And I think that's what, when we're talking about strength training, we get to is, is it is very important. And sometimes we do a poor job of understanding the adaptations and complexity behind it. But then we have to create a model that is very close, close enough for comfort while getting rid of the the details that don't influence the practicality of it or the usability and and have that model readily available so that we can again be creative and understand what we're trying to do that with with strength training, whether that's hill sprints, hill circuits, whether that's walking upstairs or carrying heavy stuff or doing circuits in the middle of intervals um, or after or before. You know, I remember watching the the late David Torrance work out in, in Houston, actually. He was on a, on a break and I picked him up from the airport and took him to a track and, and, um, you know, he was doing some, some of various, we'll call it general strength exercises, you know, various jumps, burpees, etc. in, in the middle of a workout, right? Doing some 400s and doing, doing these exercises and then doing them right after when he was, you know, before he cooled down. So, it's just like all of these avenues, all of these things are at your fingertips. You just got to be creative in how how to use them. You know, it's like Sarity used weights, but then he also used hills in the form of sand. Sand dunes, yeah. Mm -hmm. Running up sand, you're what are you doing? Well, you've just changed the, you've changed the adaptation slightly, right? You're not getting the reactivity, the absorption, and then return because the sand absorbs some of that and your foot's on the ground longer, but you are preparing your lower ligaments, tendons, legs, etc., to be able to handle some uncertainty while uh, instability while running. And then also increasing the strength component because you're going to have to recruit a hell of a lot of different muscle fibers just to get enough force into the mm-hmm into the ground to run up these freaking things. And that's, again, like the thing we always have to come back to in distance running in distance running training is specificity. How specific is the activity that we're doing, uh, you know, in relation to the goal speed or velocity or pace we want to run. And this is, you know, we kind of, as distance running coaches, we tend to rely on doing a lot of general work, because a lot of literature that's out there and a lot of stuff that's in the media and for a long time, runner's world, even, you know, the now defunct running times, et cetera, is geared towards a lot of general work, like general running for general health, for general physiological and plumbing, like 
uh, efficiency, efficacy, and, um, uh, you know, improvement. However, you know, the goal of Canova and Steve and I, you know, have this treasure trove of this Canova stuff on the scholar program is what Canova understands is general to specific. And he really, really, really is probably one of the first modern coaches to take a mathematical approach in terms of saying, okay, I have a specific pace or goal pace. We want this athlete to run, whether you're 1500 meters or a marathoner. And then the training is in all percentages of that goal pace. And for him, it's typically about 85 to hundred and like 15% range of specificity off the goal pace. And so if you're doing anything slower than 85% of goal pace, it, it should just be recovery, right? That's that kind of 85 to like 70% slower than goal pace is that moderate training that really doesn't have any effect that if you know Steven Seiler's work, it's that, you know, zone two stuff or, or level two or whatever he calls it, where it's like the valley of like little return, right? So for Canova, it's all either like 85 and more intense or recovery. And it's very simple. And that's why his training methodology is hyper-polarized, but hyper-successful because the athletes he's working with do a high frequency and high volume of specific work. And if you understand like uh, his training too, the other thing that's very interesting is they're only doing, you know, anywhere from 60 to like 80 miles a week of global running. But the construction of that is heavily focused on specific work with they don't care about, you know, recovery mileage at all, nor should they, because recovery is always time-based. And this is the difficulty sometimes getting caught up in the mileage trap. As distance coaches, we tend to look at everything as, all right, a mile is, all miles are created equal. And they're not, like the body knows time, right? So a seven-minute mile is not equal to a five-minute mile, because that's only five minutes of work versus seven minutes of work. Now, depending on the athlete's ability, it depends on what they're going to get out of that uh, that period of running for that time that's we call a mile in that speed. You know, for some people, seven minute miles might be no stress at all, no stimulus at all. And it's just, it's, it's a recovery run. For some people, that's their all out 5k repeat mile um, pace, right? And that's the, the nuance as a coach is to go past these superficial markers that are so common and to understand really, really deeply the principle about what we're trying to do when we're training, which is expose the body for a given period of time to a stimulus or a stress so it can then adapt and repair and recover from that and become more enhanced. So the next time it meets that level of stress for that period of time, it's better prepared um, to produce a lot of uh, performance, let's say power or performance uh, efficacy at that level. Stress and adaptation, man. I know you have a good book on that right here. <laughs> but but it really is, you know, it it really is that simple and I think it, it's it's complex and simple. It is. But yeah. You know, as as we look at uh as we look at, you know, strength training without a weight room, I think it's just it's it's it comes down to that. What sort of adaptation are you getting? Are you trying to get? Right. And then create a workout that, that creates the stress to do that. Yeah. So I mean, one I- of my favorites is like, you know, what I did is uh, when I was the head coach at Clackamas Community College for cross country on every run, the, instead of like, say doing something like Jay Johnson's her, uh, lunge matrix, we would do actually hurdle mobility. So that'd be the first thing we would do is hurdle mobility. Like that was the warm up. Why? You're sitting in class, hip flexors are shortened. Plus also distance runners are notorious for a shallow range of motion when running in their hips. Um, so we did hurdle mobility to kind of encourage that, that um, general range of motion. And that was every training day. Didn't matter, easy run, long run, uh, workout. And then on the easy run days after her mobility would then be some med ball activity before the run, right? Um, and also a little bit lighter sampling of that before the workout just to prime you, turn you on and do this, right? So here is two strength training activities, her mobility and med ball that has a high frequency. And this would take about 
10 minutes, 15 minutes, which was a good period of time for the athletes to like kind of, you know, chat and uh, transition from school to, to track pra- or cross country practice and track practice. Right. So we did it in a way that was very um, sociable and it's just what we did as a culture, as a team, but it did help along the way to minimize injury, to help them feel a little bit crisper and sharper. So whether you're transitioning to a neat recovery run or a workout, they were like already ready to go. They're kind of stretched out, quote unquote, right? So that they could get these better amplitudes and ranges of motion. Um, and then afterwards, because of our time constraints and they only had a short period of time, we would lift afterwards because that's when we had the weight room open, right? So like I'm saying, you got strength training, your main activity training, and then another bout of strength training all packaged within, you know, two hour period. Uh, and that was just due to the constraints I had at that time as, uh, you know, a community college coach working in that field and only having a small weight room that had very rigid um, openings in it. Yep, exactly. And I think the constraint constraints can be uh, an advantage um, in a lot of ways. So, we, we think of things and we think, well, why did, you know, this coach do this? Why does Canova do circuits? Well, probably because he works with a bunch of East African runners with, and that works really well, given that they probably don't have... Um, the weight room stuff or the, yeah, the state-of-the-art weight rooms that we have in the United States. <laughs> right. I mean, so yeah. it's a different way to get it done. You know, Ser- Serity, like you look at his old videos and he had a couple barbells and he used those wells well. And then he, you know, they had all these sand dunes. So what did they do? They used those well, you know, if um, several years ago, right before Lydia passed away, um, he gave a talk in, in Texas and someone asked, you know, what, what do you do if you have no hills? And he goes, well, you've got big football stadiums here, right? Use them. And, 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 and it's not so much, oh yeah, use, use stadiums for this. It's the point was like, use what you got and get creative to under, understand how to do it. Right. Um, that, that's the key. You know, I remember a, a couple years ago training for a really hilly, uh, course, uh, was difficult. So we don't have a lot of hills here. So what did we do? We did some circuits combined with the few hills that we did have, right? So we're doing squat jumps and stuff like that. And then running up a 150 meter hill and then doing some more stuff and coming down and, you, you just get creative for, okay, how do we develop this, you know? And I've mentioned them several times here, but I remember this conversation clearly. And Dan, John was like, you know, uh, well, how do we solve the quote unquote problem with, with female distance runners being reluctant to go in the weight room um, was kind of the topic. And Dan said, well, let's bring a barbell and some, you know, med balls out right next to the track and just get things done there and sure it won't be the same but it'll be different enough and probably feel more comfortable and probably put people in a better mindset than going in um to you know a testosterone dominated world mm-hmm. often that is the college weight room right and that's the thing i think all coaches like out of everyone i've we've studied throughout history and that we, you know, call colleagues and peers uh, in modern times has, um, has done. The commonality is not necessarily what the modality or methods they use to train. It's, you know, the creativity for their environment. And then two, understanding the, you know, if you look at it, the block or the periodization or the amount of time you need to spend uh, introducing, honing and refining a skill. And that's really when we look at uh, like Sarity or Lydiard, Igloy, um, Van Aken, uh, you know, Co. You, I mean, Canova, Schumacher, even Salazar to a certain degree. They would spend large blocks of time, um, and with those athletes focused on a couple, advancing a couple parameters within their skill set, whether it was long run efficacy um, or steady state efficacy, speed, power, um, or transitioning to, you know, intervals at race pace or goal race pace, um, or from date pace, right. 
the key is, is to understand like frequency matters. And the more frequent you can do an activity, the more quickly the body will learn. However, your frequency, which you do an activity has to be in a desirable state. So you can't, you know, do this stuff every day because you, you know, someone will start to lose the freshness and the crispness. And then it becomes a fundamentally different activity when you do it slower. And that's, we got to understand too, with the brain, when you lift a, uh, you know, barbell to do a deadlift and it has 150 pounds on it versus 200 pounds, it's fundamentally a different lift. The brain recruits and sends out different signals to make that movement happen. Even though the movement's the same, the lift is different and that's tough to distinguish versus two, 150 pound barbell for a deadlift when the athlete's in a very fresh and rested state and has gone full night's sleep and is not super stressed out, is well hydrated, well nourished, is a different lift than someone who hasn't slept, coming uh, coming over a little illness and injury, and or might be chronically dehydrated, right? So all those things we have to factor into the ability of the, ne- the necessity to maintain a high degree of frequency. So how long should you do a strength training activity? It's typically, as Dan John would say, the rule of 42, six weeks, like six weeks, six weeks, six weeks, because for a lot of this um, strength training stuff, what ends up happening is after six weeks, there starts to be a plateau in gains and more or more uh, more volume and or more intensity of that type of activity doesn't translate to as much potent gains. And that's where it's good to just change over the strength activity you're doing. So one way to think about it is, so first you could do hill sprints, right? Then you could do uh, regular sprints. Then you could introduce plyos. And then you could come back to regular sprints um, after that period of of plyo focus, right? So you have this direct transition where you're preparing the tissues for sprints getting some sprints, then increasing the uh, force absorption or elasticity of the of the, the body after you've onboarded it with that first bout of six-week sprints through plyos for another six weeks, and then coming back to your sprints. And now your sprints will be faster, not necessarily because the athlete is, quote-unquote, stronger from a, a muscle um, standpoint, but more coordinated from an elastic and elasticity uh, reabsorption recycling standpoint because you did these plyos for six weeks. And that sequence follows good tissue preparation because you're not just jumping into plyos, which is very, very difficult on the tissues. You're, you know, prefacing it with the hills and then the sprints and then, and then finally getting to the plyos and then coming back to the main activity. So when we think like that as coaches, it becomes pretty simple. And then, like I said, you just do it three to four times a week, you know, the hill sprints or the sprints or the plyos or the sprints paying what phase you're in kind of like Lydia did, where it's like, yeah, we're just going to hit you with the same stimulus every day. You know, mm-hmm. if we're in marathon block, hill bounding block, sharpening block, like it's pretty much the same every day, but the adaptations will be very potent and they'll also be more stable. And that's what Dan John, what I love about his work is all the good strength and conditioning um, coaches, you know, they understand the difference between gains and stable gains. And as athletes, what we want is stable gains. We want the ability to pr- reproduce performance in a variety of contexts at a certain level, no matter what, right? Sitting, sit and kick race, honest tempo race, surging race. Ideally, we're training so that if you're running a 1500 meter or a half marathon, you always are in about the same performance capacity um, on on the on the any day of the week, provided a lot of the external circumstances are pretty similar. Um, for a, a large chunk of time for your, you know, your season, right? For three months, three weeks, whatever your season may look like, but you don't want to go in and one day run a half marathon and run it in 70 minutes. And then the next, you know, three weeks later, go run it in 80 minutes. And then the next, three weeks later, go run it in 65 minutes. Ideally, like fitness is demonstrated by if you're kind of always between that, like 70 to 65 range, right? Without a high degree of variance, and that's really what we got to think about when we're thinking about training and progressions and incorporating strength training into stabilized periods so the athlete can really absorb it. Because if you just kind of throw it in here and there, oh, today we're going to do plyos. And, oh, yeah, I forgot about doing plyos for like 10 days. Or, oh, yeah, we'll do uh, some sprints today just because I, I heard this podcast. I read this article. It's like, 
make sure when you plan out your sequencing and training is you're planning out that block and then you're also inserting with as much care the strength work as you would lactic threshold work, steady state work, VO2 max work, um, you know, your long runs or what have you. You know, I think that's a, a, a great place to kind of sum things up because it it's like the complex and simple of it. Mm-hmm. Like understand the complex, but keep it simple and then repeat that consistent, simple work over and over again. And I know, you know, you made this point, but I think it's worth driving home for our listeners is that the world of strength and conditioning can be really overwhelming because there are so many choices and so many exercises and so many reps and different things you can do and you expand that out and we're saying get creative and it can be even crazier outside but what I've noticed again with Dan John with Vern Gambetta is they choose the handful of things that they know will work for the individuals they are working with and then they repeat those consistently with those individuals for, mm-hmm. for example, Vern Gambetta is, you know, loves his, is uh, utilizing his, um, his very simple kind of uh, lunge matrix circuit, right? He has, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, oh, yeah. Vern loves that. Yes. He, he has these different circuits that he uses that are just very simple, but very brilliant and uses those repetitively until the athlete adapts. Mm-hmm. And, you know, same thing with Dan Path and like the rudimentary it, jumps. Exactly. Uh, or, mm-hmm. you know, um, it's it's almost it's very akin to bonder check and how he does things. So I yeah. think, you know, if I'm sitting here advising a distance coach, OK, what do we need to do? Strength work outside of the weight room is figure out, you know, your very basic, your rudimentary things that like work to tend to work and focus on those and wait and don't don't try a billion different things out there. Focus on your things. It's just like Lydiard. What did he do? He focused on hills and hill bounding mm-hmm. to sprints to running really fast. To, you know, I remember it was Peter Snell, I think, who ran uh, a quick 222 something, you know, a week or two before his Olympic gold. Right. In practice. Why? Because, you know, that was the Lydiard progression. The Sarity one contains different things. The Canova one contains different things. But they all have this simplicity of taking the complex, making it simple and getting the adaptations they need to out of the athletes they're working with. And the environment you're working in, too. Like, I gave the example of when I was at Clackamas, like, we had a big campus, very runnable campus. There was a great gravel two-mile loop around it. Like, you could run from the track, and the way the campus was situated was, you know, the locker room or the track locker room was close to the track. You just get out there, and you had all the track tools there. When I was coaching at Portland State, it was a, um, you know, much different environment. There was no track, home track, right? It's an urban institution that's just in the heart of downtown Portland. So we would have to drive everywhere for our runs. Luckily, Portland's very runnable, a lot of trails in close proximity, but it would be get in the van and then go to a trail or go to some public track or um, some other facility place to do your workout or your run. So because I couldn't bring hurdles with me, because I was just very, you know, clunky to do that, to pile them in a van, we did minivan work, right? So before every run, these athletes would do uh, a minivan, um, you know, uh, drill set or you know uh, exercises to kind of get that strengthening that we want in the legs um, but since we didn't have hurdles right so again think of it like that and that was just we did that every single run every day and we had like two or three different um, complexes right so it'd go back between a and b a and b a and b but it was just really important to get that stimulus in I felt for that level of athlete to help mitigate a lot of you know lower leg uh, aches and pains and injuries uh, before and so we just placed it before every run because why we knew that you were going to run and so if we placed it before we knew it was going to get done before the run afterwards maybe not so it might be raining wet people got to get back to class right you had all these things that would, um, these friction points that would make it so they might not get the mini band uh, exercise sequence in after a run. So we just did it before. 
that's that is kind of what every quality coach does famous or you know not famous understands is like what the stimulus is they want to apply what the friction points are to apply that stimulus how often and frequent to apply the stimulus for the benefit of the athlete and then you know lock it in and go exactly so listeners hopefully you got uh something out of that um and what we'd love to hear from you is what you do in the inside and outside the weight room to get strength send us your ideas send us you know some of the maybe creative things you do or even the staple workouts or staple exercises that you feel give you the bang for the buck for your crew um i think that is highly helpful and would be interesting to look at and as always check out our stuff um superrunning.net is going live with lots of blogs and great information on this so check it out john's been working away at that i've been slaving away at the scholar program all information hopefully to make you a better coach so until next time